today's read, Asada, an autobiography by Asada Shakur, Chapter 4. Junior high school had its advantages and its disadvantages. It was more impersonal and much more confusing than elementary school, but it gave me the chance to move around and change classes, which I liked. Generally, my subjects bored me, with the exception of English, history, and a newfound love of ceramics. Parsons Junior High School in Queens was mostly white. A lot of the black kids had been put into remedial or what we called dumb classes. It never ceased to amaze me that the kids who were so smart in the street were always in the dumb classes. In junior high, everybody was going with somebody. When girls got together to talk, the subject was always boys. Who was cute? Who was going with whom? Who was fresh? Etc. Etc. A cute boy was tall, slim, but well-built, and usually had light skin. A boy was considered super fine if, in addition to light skin, he had funny colored eyes. Hazel and green eyes were the best. If a boy was popular or good at sports, he usually got a play, but in general, the boys we talked about were tall, not too dark, and handsome. One of my earliest admirers was this boy named Joe. He was new in our neighborhood, from down south or somewhere, because everyone said he was country. He was real dark and had a long body with short little legs. He liked me, and in the beginning, I think I kind of liked him too. Then, everyone started teasing me, saying he was my boyfriend and saying he looked like a black frog because his legs were so short. At that age, I was worried to death about what everyone thought of me. I wanted desperately to be one of the pack, and I didn't want anybody to make fun of me. So, whenever but whenever anybody said I liked Joe, I would deny it to the bitter end and talk about him worse than everybody else. But Joe was very sweet to me. Every time he saw me, he would smile and say something nice. On Valentine's Day, he gave me a beautiful big Valentine and some candy. One day in the spring, I heard somebody calling my name outside my bedroom window. It was Joe. Quickly, he put a flower on the sill and ran away. Every day after that, he did the same thing. When I would see him on the street, I would smile. I was really touched by the flowers. Then, one day, my mother saw him at the window putting a flower on the sill. You tell that boy to stay away from that window, she said. Now he's putting flowers in the window. The next thing you know, he'll be trying to climb in. But she still thought it was kind of cute. The next thing I knew, she was telling all her friends about it. While I was embarrassed, it also made me think I was cute. No boy had ever paid me that much attention before, and I loved it. One day, I was coming home from the store, and I saw Joe. He started walking beside me. He was kind of shy, and he had never said anything to me except, You look nice, or you look pretty. This day, we tried to make conversation as we went along. Then, all of a sudden, he said, Will you go with me? I want you to be my girl. Somehow, I was shocked. 
did he really think I would go with him and ruin my reputation forever? No, I answered. No, he repeated. Why not? I didn't know what to say. My tongue became heavy and twisted. I started to stutter. Nothing came out of my mouth. Why not? He asked again. I stammered and stuttered and then with icy bluntness I said, because you're too black and ugly. I will never forget the look on his face. He looked at me with such cold hatred that I was stunned. I was instantly sorry for that. Sorry for what I had said, but there was no taking it back. He looked at me as if he despised me more than anyone else on the face of the earth. I felt so ugly and dirty and depraved. I was shaken to the bone. For weeks, maybe months afterwards, I was haunted by what happened that day, by the snakes that had crawled out of my mouth. The sneering hatred on his face every time I saw him after that made me know there was nothing I could do to make it up to him. There was nothing I could do but change myself. Not for him, but for me. And I did change. After that, I never said black and ugly in the same sentence and never thought it. Of course, I couldn't undo all the years of self-hatred and brainwashing in that short time. But it was a beginning. And although I still cared too much about what people thought about me, I always tried hard after that to stand on my own two feet, to stand by what I felt and thought and not just be a robot. I didn't always succeed, but I always tried like hell. Mostly, when I was young, the news didn't seem real. In fact, my vision of the world was like a comic strip. In China, they ate fortune cookies and the men wore braids. In Africa, they lived in huts, wore bones in their noses and were cannibals. In South America, they wore big hats, slept in the middle of the day, drank a lot of rum and danced the cha-cha. The only place besides the United States that I could talk about with anything resembling realism was Europe. And my perception of Europe was almost as unreal. The first president I remember was Eisenhower, and even he didn't even seem real. My mother said that all he did was play golf. When he gave a speech on TV, we turned the channel. And if he was on all the stations, we turned the TV off. Only the news concerning black people made any impact at all on me. And it seemed that each year the news got worse. The first of the really bad news that I remember was Montgomery, Alabama. That was when I first heard of Martin Luther King. Rosa Parks had been arrested for refusing to give her seat to a white woman. The black people boycotted the buses. And if I remember correctly, Martin Luther King's house was bombed. Then came Little Rock. I can still remember those ugly, terrifying white mobs attacking those little children who were close to my own age. When the news about Little Rock came on, you could hear a pin drop at my house. 
we would all sit there, horrified. Sometimes afterward, somebody would say something, but usually we would just sit there, lost in our own thoughts. I guess there was nothing to say. And each year I would sit in front of that box, watching my people being attacked by white mobs, being bitten by dogs, beaten and water hosed by police, arrested and murdered. Then the news seemed too real. The older I got, the more I seemed to grow into myself. My mother and stepfather were having all kinds of problems. They were fussing and fighting like cats and dogs. They were like a whole lot of other black people in that respect. They were catching hell every day on their jobs, in society, and they took their frustrations out on each other. To make matters worse, she was a teacher and he worked in the post office. She had been to college and he had not. As far as I'm concerned, if a black man and woman make a marriage work in America, they've accomplished a miracle because everything is against them. Just being poor is one of their biggest obstacles. Most of the arguments are about money. It's hard as hell to be loving and caring when you can't pay the bills and you don't know where the next dollar is coming from and the way that we're brought up to think adds insult to injury it's changing a little but it's changing a little now a little bit now but when I was growing up every white man on television was able to support his family with no particular strain there was no need for his wife to work Her job was to stay home and take care of the kids. Black people accepted those role models for themselves, even though they had very little to do with the reality of their own existence and survival. While my parents were going through their changes, I was going through mine. I was at the age where I questioned everything. The world was beginning to have more and more impact on me. I was curious about and wanted to experience everything. On weekends, whenever I could, I would take off. I went to the movies or to the library, but my favorite activity was riding subways and buses. I would hop on any subway or bus, ride until I got tired, then get off at any stop and walk around. Sometimes I talked to people or played handball with kids my age. Other times, I just walked and looked. I went into all kinds of neighborhoods, white, black, Puerto Rican, Chinatown too, but Harlem was my favorite place. I was fascinated by the street life. I was always trying to figure out what was going on. Everything was so colorful and busy. Men standing on the corner drinking, boys playing basketball, hustlers buzzing up and down the streets, huddling and making deals. It was the land of dream books kitchen nets and Johnny Walker Red. I loved the stores. From the market on Park Avenue to the greasy fish joints to the candy stores that sold penny candy and penny cigarettes and God knows what else. I would walk and look and think. The world for me then was a big question mark 
And the biggest question of all was where I fit in. I was always late getting home and in trouble. It was like I had some kind of disease. I could never make it home on time. I would leave with the best intentions, but as soon as I got out on the street, it was as if I was in a trance. I would forget all about the time until it was too late. And half the time when I realized that it was getting dark, I didn't even know where I was, much less how to get home. My mother would talk to me, slap me, shake me, punish me, but nothing worked. I was a lost cause. I was running away from home and I didn't even know it. And one thing always led to another. I was turning into a fantastic liar. As soon as I got near home, I began making up lies. When I look back at it now, I know my mother must have wanted to choke me when she heard those far-fetched creations, but at the time, I thought they were brilliant. As the problems in my family intensified, I ran away consciously instead of unconsciously. The first time I ran away, I went to Evelyn's house. She wasn't home, so I fell asleep on the stairway. When she came home, she thought I was some kind of drunken bum, so she walked by me and went to her apartment. I came back the next day and she talked to me, played shrink and family counselor and sent me home. It worked for a while, but things were a mess. My mother and I couldn't see eye to eye about anything, and I was just as stubborn and self-willed as she was. And even when I tried to do right, it just seemed like I couldn't do anything that made her happy. And when my mother and stepfather were at each other's throats, it drove me wild. I would simply get my coat and walk out. Some days I just didn't come back. At times, running away was fun and exciting. At other times, it was miserable, cold, and lonely. The part I dug about it, though, was surviving. Being out there, face-to-face with the raunchiest side of life was like living on a roller coaster, everything hurling itself at you at breakneck speed. It was one hell of an education, and when I think about it, I was one lucky child. So many things could have happened to me, and almost did. The first time I ran away, I had just the clothes on my back and very little money. I rode the subway and slept in the hallways until I just couldn't take it anymore. Then I started talking to people. One of the first people I met was this boy named David. I told him that my mother was in the hospital and that I didn't have any other family in New York and I was scared to stay home alone. He took me home to his mother's house and we told his mother the same story. She said it would be okay for me to spend the night. They lived in the Farragut Projects in Brooklyn. David took me out and introduced me to all his friends. We got along fine until nighttime. Then it was war, an all-night wrestling match. When he wasn't attacking me, he was begging and pleading and thinking of a thousand arguments why I should give him some. I told him I was afraid of getting pregnant. He went and got this big jar of Vaseline and told me that if you use Vaseline, you couldn't get pregnant. I was dumb, but not that dumb. I told him to go to hell, and the wrestling match continued. After a day or two at David's, 
I was ready to move on. Besides, his mother was getting suspicious. My next new friend was a girl. I couldn't take any more Davids. Tina lived in the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn with her mother and her brother in a brownstone house. It was a rickety old house, and half of it looked like it was condemned. There was nothing whatsoever in that house that was orderly. There were rooms with all kinds of junk in them, stacked almost to the ceiling, tables, chairs, record players, old radios. I told the same old story to Tina's mother, and she was sweet as pie. I could stay there just as long as I wanted, she said. In fact, she said, she just loved to have young people around her. And she wasn't lying either. All day long there was a procession of people in and out of that house, and most of them were young. When Tina's mother saw that I didn't have any clothes, she said, we'll just have to take you shopping. I remember thinking how nice she was to be willing to spend money on me, a stranger. The next morning, we went down to Fulton Street. All right, she told me. Now, I want you to go with Tina into A&S and pick out what you want. I'll be here at the soda place. Just remember where everything is. Off we went, Tina and I. I was happy as a jaybird. My clothes were kind of on the funky side. When we got inside the store, I started to pick up things and got ready to try them on. Be cool, said Tina. Don't you know what size you wear? Yeah, I said, why? Let's just get the stuff and get out of here. If you like something, just say so. Don't go picking it up and putting it on and carrying on. Okay, I said, thinking that she was strange. I liked a plaid kilt with a big safety pin and a blouse and sweater to match. This will go with it too, Tina said, pointing to a white blouse. Now, you just do what I tell you. Step in this. Step in what, I said, looking down. Be cool, fool, Tina whispered. Just keep looking ahead and help me pull this thing up. She had already got half the skirt up around my thighs. Finally, we got the skirt up and fastened under my own skirt. Okay, let's get out of here, Tina said. Wait a minute, roll that skirt up. It's hanging down and don't look down. I was scared out of my wits, but I started to roll. Not your skirt, fool, Tina whispered, the one underneath. Well, I was walking and rolling and trying to look cool, and if anyone had seen me, I know I must have looked like a slapstick comedy, but somehow we made it out of there. I expected the police to come swooping down on us at any moment. Tina's mother was still sitting in the same place, sipping on a soda. How'd it go, she asked Tina. She's okay, Tina said. She don't know nothing, but she was cool. I felt like fainting. Everybody else's mother I knew would knock you down if they even thought you were stealing. This was surely something new. I just kept staring at Tina's mother. She must have seen me staring at her too, because she told me, that's right, I steal and my kids steal too. They trying to take my house from me, trying to take everything I got. I got to survive by the best way I know how, but it ain't really stealing. It's just a discount. You need a discount, how as these stores is. We call it the five-finger discount. <laughs> she started laughing. When we got to the house, she said, all right, let's see all the pretty clothes you got. Tina took the blouses and sweater from somewhere, and I took the skirt from under my skirt. That's all you got? Yeah, said Tina. She don't know how to do nothing, and we was taking too long. 
Y'all ain't get no underwear? Tina's mother asked. No. Well, here, she said, giving us some money. Go to the five and dime and buy some. And I don't want y'all taking nothing, you hear? I didn't raise no nickel and dime store kids, understand? Yes. And we were gone. We're going to teach you how to deal, Tina said on the way from the store. I just looked at her. My mind was spinning. Then I started to feel glad about it. We had gotten over. We had gotten over tough. The idea of five-finger discounts was beginning to appeal to me, and it was easy as hell. That night, I dressed up in my new clothes and went with Tina and her brother to hang out. He was on the quiet side and evil-looking, but he turned out to be nice. We were going to a party at the Fort Greene Projects. We stopped and bought some french fries and Thunderbird. At the party, Tina introduced me to Tyrone. It was love at first sight. I thought he was the cutest boy I'd ever seen. Tyrone was the warlord of the Fort Greene Chaplains, and I thought it was just so romantic, like West Side Story. We sat in the hallway, drinking wine and smoking cigarettes. I had smoked before, but I had never drunk any wine. The music was playing and the lights were down low, and I was feeling so good. They were playing those old slow sides like Wind, Gloria, and In the Still of the Night, Sunday kind of love. We went inside and started to dance. I was in love and dancing on clouds, whirling around the dance floor. I was whirling and spinning, and all of a sudden I was outside, holding on to some bench for dear life, drunk as a skunk and sick as a dog. When I was finally able to stand, Tyrone walked me to Tina's house. We held hands all the way, and he made a big deal out of kissing me goodnight, although I'll never understand how he could stand my vomit-tasting mouth. I woke up the next morning feeling like elephants had been doing the Watusi on my forehead, and like I was walking on my eyelids, Tina's mother wanted me to go someplace with her. I got up, washed, and got dressed. What kind of jewelry do you like, she asked me. I don't know, I said. I guess I like rubies because they're my birthstone. Oh no, you look like a girl that's made strictly for diamonds. Really? I asked, flattered. Oh yeah, diamonds are a girl's best friend, and I'm going to show you how to get some. She spent the morning and most of the afternoon showing me how to do just that. You have nothing to worry about, she kept telling me. Even if they catch you, they can't do nothing to you. You're a kid. I was supposed to go in a store and talk very proper. I was to ask the price of everything and tell the clerk that my father gave me $80 to spend, but that I had some money of my own. Tina and her brother would come in and create a diversion, and while everyone was looking at them, I was to put the biggest earrings I could get in my mouth under my tongue. I was to say something to the salesman and walk calmly out of the store. There were a few more parts to the plan, but I don't remember them. She had me practice talking with things under my tongue. When I got to the store, I thought I was going to die of fright. I acted like I didn't know Tina and her brother and went in as planned. The store was pretty crowded and I went into my act. I was so scared, I felt like I was having hot flashes. At first, the salesman acted like he didn't want to show me anything, but when I told him about the $80 and my extra money, he hurried up and pulled out trays. I held them up saying, do you think she'll like these? Do you think she'll like these better? 
Then all of a sudden, Tina and her brother came running into the store. They were laughing real loud and chasing and grabbing each other. I almost forgot what I was supposed to be doing because I was so busy watching them. Then I remembered, and when I saw that no one was watching, I picked up the biggest earrings I saw and put them into my mouth. I don't see anything Mommy would really like, I said. Maybe I'll come back later. I started walking to the door. I just knew that that man was going to call me back. Miss, someone called. I felt like dropping through the floor. I looked out of the corner of my eye and saw that it was another salesman calling someone else. I walked out of the store, turned a corner, and ran. I was halfway to Tina's house before they caught up with me. The earrings were still in my mouth. Did you get over? Tina asked me. I looked at her almost as if I didn't know her. Did you cop or not? She asked again, impatiently. Finally, I spit the earrings out into my hand. Shit, said Tina's mother. Them's pretty numbers there. I like them myself. As it turned out, the earrings were for pierced ears, and my ears weren't pierced. Sell them to me, Tina's mother said. I'll give you $20 for them. It's a deal, I told her. I was glad as hell to get $20. I didn't care about no diamond earrings, and I needed some money to get away and try to find a job. I was convinced that I was not cut out to be no thief. That night, we went out to celebrate. Tina's mother had given me $20 plus $2 extra for the work, and she had also given me a pretty gold-colored dress and nice black shoes. I was dressed up clean as the Board of Health, and we all had some money in our pockets and were ready to do it. We looked for Tyrone, but he was at home. We walked all around the projects until we found him. He was at the house of these twins, Jesse and James, or something like that. They all went downstairs for some kind of meeting. Everybody said they were going to fight. They were at war with another gang, the bishops, and one of their members had got messed up by the bishops. Finally, the meeting was over, and Tyrone came and hung out with us, but... It wasn't the same. He spent the whole night talking about what he was going to do to the bishops. And if he wasn't talking about that, he was talking about the fights he'd had before. Gang fights, school fights, fight fights, etc. It seemed like his whole life was fighting. Why, I kept thinking. Why was he so into fighting? The question was on the tip of my tongue, but I just couldn't bring myself to ask it. I tried to imagine the future. Mrs. Tyrone, whatever his name was, and the children. Me, packing his lunch as he went off to fight the bishops. Somehow the picture didn't work. I was tired of this adventure. I was ready to go home, whatever the consequences.